Hey there, friend. Listen, I want to invite you to join me for an upcoming presentation I'm offering called How to Shift from Willpower to Want Power. If you're tired of feeling like you have the best of intentions with food and weight, only to have it all fall by the wayside by the time your head hits the pillow at night, then this is for you. If you're interested in making permanent weight loss easier and less of a struggle, then this is for you. If you're curious what want power is, which you probably should be, and can't wait to learn how to incorporate it into your journey toward peace and freedom around food, then this is for you. I'll be presenting live twice on Wednesday, May 1st, 2024, at both noon and 7.30 p.m. Central Time Zone. I'll answer your questions live and we'll have a really good time together. But if you can't make either of those days, I'm not going to make you get a replay emailed into your inbox only for it to get lost and never be watched no matter how deeply you want to make time to go through it. Because I mean, honestly, who are we kidding? (laughs) We've all done this, including me. No, instead, we are offering multiple watch parties for several days after the live presentation. So come watch the replay with other doctors and interact in the chat with them and my team. So either way, whether you come live or to a watch party, it will be worth your time for sure. All you have to do is register at katrinaubellmd.com forward slash want power. That's katrinaubellmd.com forward slash W-A-N-T-P-O-W-E-R. See you there. You are listening to the Weight Loss for Busy Physicians podcast with Katrina Ubell, MD, Conversations About Racism in Medicine, Part 1. Welcome to Weight Loss for Busy Physicians, the podcast where busy doctors like you get the practical solutions and support you need to permanently lose the weight so you can feel better and have the life you want. If you're looking to overcome your stress eating and exhaustion and move into freedom around food, you're in the right place. Hey, my friend, I want to welcome you to a bonus series that I'm offering to you this week about racism in medicine. And so I'm titling it Conversations About Racism in Medicine. And so what I have planned for you is every day for the next several days, I'm going to have a new conversation for you between me and my clients who are Black. So Black physician, women, who so graciously and lovingly offered to, well, agreed to have a conversation with me, allow it to be recorded and allow me to post it onto this podcast. And so I want to just very briefly before I have the conversation begin, I want to tell you a little bit more about why I decided to do this. As you know, there's been so much discussion about race and racism in America and uh, recently, and I have not seen really a lot about racism in medicine specifically. And I thought that, you know, I have a unique platform and I am able to reach a lot of doctors, a lot of healthcare providers, and just a lot of other people as well. But more specifically within medicine, I have the opportunity to be able to shine some light on where racism might be showing up within your life as a physician that you're not aware of, or maybe you are aware of. And so here's what I decided as I was thinking about doing this. I by no means identify as an expert in race or racism, race relations, in trauma, in any of those things. That's not something that I feel like I can come on and say, hey, you guys, this is this is what you should be doing. But I do know that story is very, very powerful. In fact, our human brains are designed to pay attention whenever a story is told. And this actually has helped to keep us alive because for the longest time with humans, the way information was transmitted was verbal transmission. And so we had to be able to pay attention when someone was teaching us something important or telling us something important. And so I thought, well, what better than to get the stories of real Black women physicians who are living their lives day to day and finding out what it's really like, what's really going on. I know for myself that a huge 
issue for me is the lack of awareness around my own personal biases, potentially the privilege that I have. I've been learning so much over the last number of days. And I do want to just mention actually as an aside that I've been posting a lot of resources that I found to be helpful, a lot of videos that I've found really explain things well in a loving way. I I personally don't find being yelled at to be super effective at helping me understand things. So I found some really, really great stuff and I've posted it all to highlights in um, my Instagram. And so if you're interested in looking into any of that, go to my handle on Instagram, which is Coach Katrina Ubell MD. You can find all that stuff there. But I thought, you know, what can I do to use this platform and your attention to be able to further this movement and progress it forward? And then I had the idea, you know, I'm going to reach out to these amazing women who I love so dearly and respect so much and get to know them on a deeper level for my own understanding so that I can progress myself, but also allow you to listen in to help you as well. I know so many of us want to do better and we're trying to figure out how to do that. And I think these conversations are going to really be helpful in that way. I do want to just point out, you know, this isn't just like someone coming on and just talking to me. (laughs) This is someone coming on and saying, hey, I'm going to share with you some of the most painful experiences of my life. And oh, God, you know, go ahead, by the way, (laughs) put that all up on the internet. And so I just want to just acknowledge that it takes a lot of courage for somebody to agree to do something like this. And just all the women that are to come in the next couple of days, I just super respect them and I'm so appreciative that they are willing to come on and, and do this for all of us. So I want to introduce you to the first person I spoke to. Her name is Tendi, and she is an emergency medicine physician. She tells you all about her whole story in the beginning of the podcast, so I'm just going to let her tell that all to you. But she is amazing. She is a mother. She is currently pregnant with another child. I think she had just a really, really she, well, everybody's story is interesting. What am I talking about, right? <laughs> I'm like, she has such an interesting story. But everybody has a really interesting story when you're when you're willing and, interest, and interested in them and hearing about it. So I think that this can be very, very helpful for you to listen to this. I will be coming on at the, after all these conversations are finished, I will be publishing an episode where I talk a little bit more specifically about why we often as white people don't take action what's behind our resistance to being an ally and what we can do to help ourselves to move forward. So that will be coming at the end. I wanted to be really clear that these conversations stand alone. This isn't, you know, the Katrina show with them, with these these clients of mine coming and, and bolstering it. Like I want their their stories to stand alone. So I will be coming in a couple of days with a specific episode to address those things. So With that, I want to encourage you to listen to this whole episode. It is a little bit longer than I usually do, but it's so, so worth it. And some there's really, really good stuff in there. So please listen, please enjoy, please take what you hear and just think about how it applies to you. Think about where you have maybe shown up in a way that you didn't realize or maybe even weren't totally proud of, but then just tried to ignore it or something like that. So please enjoy, please. I hope you get a lot out of it. And we'll be back tomorrow with another conversation. All right. See you soon. Tendi, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is going to be, going to be good. I'm, I'm actually really excited. I have to say I've had all the emotions. I was really nervous. I, I'm going to be hundred percent honest. I was worried about doing the wrong thing which has been very eye-opening for me because, you know, as you might guess, it's not the first time I've had that concern in my life, (laughs) right? (laughs) But just deciding to like be willing to be wrong because I think that these are really conversations that are not being had by most people. And I think it's it's just a really um, nice opportunity to just find out specifically what's happening for people. I think when we talk about like generalizations and things that makes it hard for us to understand like, but there's also a person here. So there's, there's right. Like there's the, there's groups and then there's individuals. And I think it's important to, you know, kind of spotlight both. So the first thing I actually want to do is ask you a question that I, I actually 
was encouraged to ask by someone that uh, someone whose video on Instagram that I, that I listened to her name's Ohavia Phillips, and mm-hmm. she was saying that you know instead of just deciding what to call people, you should ask them how they prefer to be called. So, do you prefer to be called Black, African American, or a person of color? So for me, Black is going to be the most descriptive for me. My background is that actually my parents, um, like we immigrated here to the U.S. And so the descriptor of African-American doesn't feel for me like it's genuinely explaining like who I am because my ancestry and background is really very much so rooted in like one country in in Zimbabwe. I've been here in the U.S. for over 20 years. Um, I'm American now. My husband is Black. And so I think my experiences that I'm having and that I'll speak to are of being Black. Um, But um, for me, person of color, I think, is not one I think I've ever used. I don't know that I'm uncomfortable with it, but Black, I think, um, encompasses it all. Okay. Okay. This is really good. Awesome. Okay. So you kind of gave us a little bit of of a background of yourself, but why don't you give us a little bit more about, so so family immigrated here 20 years ago. Tell us a little bit more about your life, who you are, that kind of thing. My parents uh, and me um, were born in Zimbabwe, lived in the U.S. when I was a child and did most of my elementary school um, in the U.S. We ended up moving here. And a lot of it was related to just like my dad's education. And that's what kind of brought us here. I went back to Zimbabwe and had my high school experience there. Um, and then came back here at 19 and I've been here since I mean, I'm 35 now. So at this point, all my immediate family, we all live here in the U.S. and we're all American now. You know, I decided to go into medicine and did all my training, including undergrad here in the U.S. And I'm now practicing as an emergency physician. And I've been doing that for the last five years um, as an attending at like a academic position here. Got one kid um, and another one on the way. Awesome. All right. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. So I think that actually I'm going to even just steer away from the first question I was going to get into on this. You, How old were you when you came to America? So we came a couple of times to the U.S. So first time I was two, then more recently I was 19. Okay. So when you, do you recall an experience or a time where you first really experienced racism in America where it kind of became clear to you like this is a thing or did your parents talk to you about it first how did that go I don't remember my parents distinctly talking to me before I first experienced it my first experience I was in like elementary school years and I was riding my bike with my sister and I remember someone yelling at both of us and was calling us the n-word I um, remember a few times at school, a couple of kids called me the N-word to here and there. I didn't know how to really process it then. And I don't know, you know, just thinking back that I even really went to my parents. I think we just were like, we felt threatened. So we kind of quickly rode our bikes away with those kids. I remember crying about it um, and feeling rejected. The elementary school I went to in the U.S. was not very diverse. And so I think feeling like different, feeling like other was very distinct. But we had also, um, you know, we were African kind of coming into that environment. So I think it felt even more so like a community that wasn't our own. Uh, yes, right. You're already other because you're an immigrant. And right. then, yes. And being then, Black, I think just yes. kind of heightened it for us. But I, I don't think I understood it. And my parents, you know, growing up in Zimbabwe, we were a country that was colonized. And my parents grew up in segregated schools as well. So they they grew up with racism being something they experienced. My parents, like my dad, the, the names they were given, they, they weren't allowed to give, you know, their kids traditional names. They had to give their kids names that were approved, kind of British names. We didn't get independence until 1980. So they grew up in a society where uh, some opportunities were limited for them. So for them, racism, something they they grew up with, but I don't think they, you know, sat down and said, hey, kids, this is what it is. But as the years have gone on, of course, it's, it's easy to talk to them about it. They can easily relate to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is a conversation that comes up. Yes. Yes. It's not um, at all ever like uncomfortable 
it's like a safe space to kind of go home and yeah. say what you're feeling and, and, and you, and you know, they understand. Yeah. It's a shared experience. Yeah. People get it. Okay. So at what point in your life did you decide to become a doctor? Something when you, when you were little or when you were older? I mean, I think when I was little is when I decided I wanted to do it. But, you know, like when you finally actually make the decision and start getting serious about it was probably later in high school when I, you know, really realized what it took and what I needed to do to get there. Did you experience, I mean, I'm I'm just assuming the answer is going to be yes, but were there any experiences that you had where when you expressed that to people, they had racist opinions about you following that path? I don't think so because I, it was something I often more so expressed to like my family and like my closer friends. Once I was much older, I think I didn't have anyone like discourage me from like going into it or, you know, tell me like I couldn't do it. My parents are both in academia. My dad's a professor and all that. So they've never, I think they always gave us the confidence like you girls can do whatever you want to do. Um, so I, I didn't have that experience personally. Okay. And then, so you applied to medical school, mm-hmm. obviously got in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tell me about your experience of starting medical school. Yeah. Like day one, like, what was that like? Yeah. So med school was, yeah, that's probably the time in my life where I felt my blackness the most. I was super excited to go to med school. I was very optimistic. This was going to be awesome. The med school I chose to go to is in the south of, of, of the U.S. It's a private university and a fairly renowned university. So for me, even going there based on my background was like, whoa, you know, big deal. So I was super excited to be there. It was a school that was not traditionally like years before us, a very diverse med school. The class that came in with me was the most diverse class they'd ever recruited. There were nine of us black women. I was just going to say how, like, what does that mean? Yeah. Out of how many? Yeah. There were nine black women and our class was 105. So huge, like 10% black women. And which, you know, I was actually looking it up. They, just for people listening, the, the percentage of black people in medicine in the U.S. is 5%. Mm-hmm. So it's like a third of what the general population is. Yeah. So exactly. 10% actually is high, I guess. Huge. And that's just yeah. the black girls. I think there were four black men in our class. Um, and we had a few Hispanic people in our class, I think three. So huge. But this was a very clear initiative they made to recruit us. Okay. Like when I interviewed there, I met with the Dean for Diversity. Like they made a very intentional pull to bring us there because what their upper classes looked like. So once we started, it was great. I mean, I was like, look, I've got all these people like me. But the tradition of the school was, it sort of had a a lot of legacy, meaning a lot of my classmates, their parents had gone there. Some of my classmates were named after buildings. Oh, is that right? (laughs) (laughs) Or their parents were deans, things like that. It didn't take long before we felt like we were other as a group. We sort of banded together. Didn't mean we didn't hang out with everybody. Certainly we did. But there was a very like strong sense among us that I think we like really needed to somewhat like help each other stick together. But there was a lot of things, you know, things that happened that I think were hurtful for us that um, kind of, I think, created more angst than I probably would have liked. One. There are any examples? Yeah. I think it's really good to hear like specifically what it is because like literally so many of us just do not know, like we don't even see it. Yeah. So I think one of the things we had an organization that we did, especially in our like preclinical years called the Student National Medical Association. And with that organization, like a lot of stuff we would do was focused on like outreach in our community. There were some that events that we did and we would put on events for other students and one event we would do is like a diversity week and have different speakers come in and what I noticed when I was in that organization my second year that like after being in there for two years was we had a diversity week and we brought in a pretty prominent speaker from like another state to come talk and like nobody came Mm. you know just us and like a couple sprinkling of some other black students and I just I just lost it like I sent an email <laughs> sent an email out to two year groups and said, you guys don't attend stuff that the black students host. I think it felt like when things were done that we felt passionate about, or we thought 
would help bring some awareness that people ignored them and thought that's the Black students and that's what they're doing. People just ignored and didn't really participate. And we felt a lot of frustration because we went to other stuff. And I remember kind of having a few regrets. I sent the email because it didn't change a whole lot, but created a lot of tension, Mm. a lot of awkwardness. I think people felt called out. But those were a couple, you know, that was just one thing that I think was a theme was while we felt we were passionate about something that we wanted to spread awareness of, grow, our classmates were, they just, you know, felt like they just kind of ignored us um, in that sense. Another thing I noticed, so, you know, I, we, my friends and I, we'd like to study in the library. That was our thing. So we'd kind of get together in the evening and we just like to sit near each other. It was definitely many times where the staff in the library felt like they needed to double check our credentials. Oh, interesting. Make sure that we were like supposed to be in that library. And we, we knew it was because they, you know, just weren't certain that we actually were students at that university mm-hmm. that would come up. We'd brush it off and kind of keep going, but certainly it felt like unnecessary. I remember studying for board exams um, when we're studying for step one, we wanted a new environment to study. So we uh, decided to not study at the medical center library and study, believe where'd we go to the business school or, and we could use each other's libraries. It wasn't a big deal. We just wanted yeah. a change of environment. One evening, one of the staff members approached us, wondered who we were and why we were in their library. And we explained that we're medical students and we're studying for our board exam. But I don't believe she believed we were medical students at that institution because there was another medical school in town that was a traditionally like HBCU university. Mm -hmm. And basically they asked us to leave. So we emailed our dean, like our dean of students and and told, hey, like this happened to us. And there was sort of a vague, we'll look into that. But it was made clear that like we probably needed to go find somewhere else to study. We did, you know, so we did. And we just kind of moved along with it. It was just three of us, you know, but for some reason, we definitely felt like the questioning of whether we were, whether we belonged in certain spaces came up a few times during, during our time there, which was just a bit unfortunate. And, you know, as I'm, as I'm expressing my surprise, you know, I'm real, I realized like, that's my white privilege, right? The fact that I'm not even that I'm even surprised. I shouldn't be surprised if I'm aware of what would be happening. I'd be like, of course that would happen. I think, well, I think yeah, because I think for for me, for us, you know, sometimes as Black people, you know, really I can only speak for myself. Sometimes you question whether if you step into a certain space, you're going to be, it's going to be assumed you belong there or you're going to need to have someone recheck your credentials to say, yes, I think you seem like you should be here. You know, you see, you know, we clearly were Black people they had never seen before until around that time. And so for them, that seemed unusual. And they definitely needed to verify that we belonged in that space. Sure, maybe she could have chosen to believe us and said, that's fine, you can stay. But the the fact of being checked is not sort of something that was that surprising to us, because clearly we sort of stand out, like, who are these people mm. to some extent? Going back to what you were saying with the initiative of the medical school to bring in more Black students, I'm curious what the thought is by you and just people that you know about something like that. Like, like is that appreciated? Is that also even sort of kind of offensive in its own way? How is that viewed? I mean, I think, I think it's good in a lot of ways because what ends up happening is if say I went to a medical school, like this happened when I went to residency, for example, you know, do you, how comfortable are you being like the only black person in a medical school? Right. So I think, you know, some places you are, you know, like, or you go to a residency that's, you know, not a small, like, you know, group of five or six, but, you know, you go to a residency and there's 60 residents and, you know, 20 each class and you're the only black person in that whole group and all the faculty, no one's, no, you know, no one looks at all like you. It's not the fact that you're not white. It's more the fact of why have other black people not been here? Is it a place that's not welcoming? Did something happen? Do you guys not want people like us here? 
am I going to be okay? And is it going to be a place that will be supportive of me? And so, so yeah, I, I think for me, I think places, I would encourage them to look around and say, how do we create an environment where minorities come and feel welcomed here, where we have a supportive structure among all our students, where people are allies and Sometimes it has to be very intentional. You can't just be casual about it and just say, well, we accept applicants from everybody and thank everybody. And this is who ends up coming here. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, sometimes people who are minorities are nervous to kind of just be jump right into something because, you know, places sometimes develop reputations and, and people are just fearful and may just not want that additional stressor on top of being in medical school, right? Of being yeah, a trailblazer. Hard enough. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <you're a> trailblazer. <laughs> Be the first black graduate from a medical, you know, it's a, it's a lot, it's a lot of weight, you know? And I think um, sometimes as a black person in a new space, you feel more weight because you're not just sometimes feeling like you're carrying your own you know, the weight of yourself being successful. You know, I know when I went to residency, I felt the weight of it. You know, it was a very white residency, big residency of 60 plus, and there were no black people there at all. One black faculty, two black faculty members, and it's a huge, huge department. And I was a bit nervous because I was like, you know, what's it going to be? Because what if I come here and I'm the only one? And fortunately, two of us matched there. Okay. (laughs) Me and another guy. But I, you know, I remember when I talked to one of the faculty members, one of the African-American faculty members when I was considering ranking the place. And she said, as black people, you have to be two times better. And I didn't understand what that meant. I was like, like, I got to be like academically twice as good. And, I, you know, like that's too much pressure. And I understand I, I kind of understood it now where it means that you need to sort of be above reproach. It doesn't mean you have to be better academically than everybody be at the top of the class, but you know, you can't be like that trouble resident, you know, the one who's acting out. You can't be the one that, you know, nurses don't like and the one that people are pulling aside and you can't be like angry and loud and and all those things because you're not representing yourself only you're representing for this idea of, you know, if you mess up, it's like, well, maybe it's, maybe it's black people. Yeah. So it sounds like you kind of censor yourself or like even mute yourself a little. Like I would say something, but I don't want it to have this detrimental effect otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't like sort of just be, you know, I'd see some of my other residents who, you know, they're out here expressing themselves. They're getting into it, you know, about things they don't like or unhappy about. And it doesn't mean you have to always completely censor yourself, but you just recognize that you're representing more than yourself. Mm-hmm. You're representing the idea that African-Americans can be successful in this space. And you don't want them to reconsider whether they would want to bring other Black people, because even though they might treat you, are not treated as an individual. It almost feels like you're representing for mm-hmm. other Black people and sort of, you know, where you like an experiment or like a trial. Um, and so you need to be successful, you know, be you good. Like people are watching too, kind of like, how is she going to do? How is she going to handle everything? Correct. Correct. Okay. So me and the other guy, you know, we were, we were, you know, exemplary residents and, you know, you do your job and you you make sure people like you and, you know, the Mm -hmm. whole thing, not in a fake way, but just in a, you know, really want to be a good role model. Then yeah, you're now, you know, that's a, it's a diverse residency. When I look at the pictures now, we've been able to recruit more and more people of color and once you kind of get the ball rolling, people do want to come in and, 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 and be part of it. Mm-hmm. Curious what you think about how gender plays into this too, because women in medicine is its own separate kind of initiative in and of itself. And I think more so in some fields than in others, mm-hmm. but I'm curious how you feel like that plays into this. Are they kind of hand in hand? Are they separate things for you? How do you think about that? I think they're a little bit separate for me. I mean, I think some of the initiatives that we take um, as women, like to recruit more women, it's easier to talk about. They're much more like the, the, I'm a faculty member at my program here and we've had some trouble with recruiting women at our program, but I feel like that conversation has been so much easier how to address it. And I think as women, we sort of can easily band together and we can talk about it out loud, you know, like in our, 
work area and be like, yeah, we need to get more girls and the boys can laugh about it. And, you know, it, it's comfortable. Yeah. I don't feel comfortable just being like, and, you know, we have no black people in our department <laughs> except for me. Right. <laughs> you know, like even if there was another black person there, like that's not a conversation I would say out loud. It's, 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 it's way more sensitive. You know, the woman thing, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, like people don't really get that uncomfortable about it. You know, when you talk about my mm-hmm. patient thinks I'm a nurse, people can say, yeah, that's, you know, that sucks for you guys. I, you mm-hmm. know, that's not good. But for me to be like, you know, my patients, you know, they seem confused when I go in the room and I introduce myself as a doctor. They seem taken aback for a second. Mm-hmm. Hit in their eyes and we just kind of keep going. Right. You know, I work to gain their trust and they never say anything, but I know for a second there was a little bit of, okay, what are we doing here today? Kind of thought my black patients, they tell me you're the first black doctor I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Obviously I'm the first black doctor. Some of my white patients have, but they can't, they'll never say that. Right. Yeah, but I yeah. know it. My black docs, usually they're like proud of me. Like, Oh, so proud of you. That's awesome. You know, blah, blah, blah. But I can't come back out and be like, yeah, guys, like, what's up with the lack of diversity mm-hmm. you know so 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 you don't say anything you just yeah. kind of keep going as though you know it, it doesn't exist it's like it doesn't exist yeah which I think just then ultimately ends up sort of perpetuating it right it's more of like us white people being completely oblivious to what's happening correct and not even recognizing that it would be a good idea, like a conversation to be had. And, you know, I like to, to believe in the good in people. I'm sure there are 100% very racist doctors who, you know, have their own agenda, but I don't think that that's going to be the majority. But I think that there's a lot of white doctors who really legitimately and honestly want to help, mm. but they don't even see the problem. Like there's such a lack of awareness around it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I I think for me, you know, I, I tell my husband because, you know, he's, he's also in a situation where, you know, with his work, sometimes he's often the only black person in a, in a very like big white community is you often don't feel different or feel out of place if people are, are kind, they're, they're warm and people, you know, there aren't those microaggressions going on, you know, so I'm comfortable and have lived a lot of my life being one black person in a big kind of space with a lot of white people. Um, and I know how to do that. Like our neighborhood, you know, it's very white. Like it just is what it is. You know, the only time you start to really be conscious of it is when people start to treat you differently. That's when the discomfort comes in or when race kind of comes up and you kind of sense a little bit of just like a lot of discomfort among people. And you realize that's a no go topic. I have, you know, just like you, I believe a lot of people just don't see it. And for them, it's just, they just don't acknowledge it. I mean, I'm conscious of my blackness every day, multiple times a day, not always in a negative way, but I'm always conscious of it. And I don't know, you know, I I can't speak to it. I don't know if a lot of times white people are conscious of their whiteness every day. I think, you know, when people get offended by the term white privilege, I think that is part of the privilege, right? Where your whiteness is not anything that you feel is um, something you have to navigate. I'm and- realizing that because I think I didn't, re- I, I've been learning some, I of course had heard about that, heard that term and things before, but I don't think that I really understood it the way I do over just the last, you know, short period of time, learning more about it. Like it's a privilege to just not even have it be an issue to not have it be even anything on your conscious awareness as something to think about. Correct. Correct. And you know, it's not like it's a negative thing. It just sort of is, is the reality um, Mm -hmm. of life. I know people get very defensive about it because I think they think it means something individual to them and that they've not experienced struggle in their life. Right. Um, which, which isn't true. I mean, you know, of course, like we acknowledge that people had to work hard for what they have. It's not like you lived a privileged life. It just means that the hardships you've had in your life have not been attributed to your color. Yes. That's, Thank you. that's, that's not that's been one, one of the factors that came into it. And for black yeah. people, we know that we have to navigate our blackness when we think about, do I take a job here? Well, you know, is my blackness going to be okay there? Can I live in this neighborhood? I don't just look at the houses and when I look to see, can my kid play outside the yard and be fine there? Right. Yeah. That's, that's top of mind. You know, mm-hmm. my realtor, you know, I'm like, 
are the black people in the neighborhood just like i don't know you know so i have to think about that does it feel welcoming like are we going to be okay taking walks as a family in the evening what are the stores going to be like is going to be a place we can take a jog and run around you know can my kid go to these schools and the teachers will treat him the way they do the other kids or is my kid going to somehow you know have like a mark on his back because, you know, they have certain expectations of black boys. And so am I more likely to send my kid to a public school? Maybe because I want him somewhere where it's diverse and he's not maybe the only one, you know, so early Mm -hmm. in his life. And so those things come into play for me, whereas white people, to some extent, may not have to factor those things in. May not. Some may, but not everybody. So, so Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Did you ever have, again, I I say ever, I'm like, I just know you're going to be like, yes. But uh, so let's just talk about in training, Mm -hmm. you were, you know, would see plenty of white patients and you talked about kind of the, you know, the, the, that split second kind of look understanding, okay, we're doing this. All right. Like, you know, we're going to pretend like that didn't just happen and we're just going to move forward. Did you experience some like blatant racism or like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want this person taking care of me or things like that. No, I've never had someone just come right out and say they didn't want me to provide care for them. What I've had is more, you know, I've taken care of many patients who have like white power tattoos all over them or have a lot of like paraphernalia, like swastikas and white power tattoos. And, you know, you see it while you're examining their skin or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's come up more so a lot in the last couple of years. And I feel very uncomfortable by it. I was going to say, do you do anything or just pretend like it's not there and just stay super professional and what their, what their concern is? Yeah. I don't, I, I, you know, I just don't acknowledge it and just act like, um, like I don't see it and just continue doing my job, try to be even more professional once I had a patient who did have all this paraphernalia and tattoos and I mentioned, you know, I just kind of under, you know, mentioned it to the charge nurse, just like, yeah, you know, it's got all this white power stuff all over him. Cause like I said, I'm the only black physician in my department and including our residents, we don't have anybody. And his, his, his response to me was, yeah, you know, it's weird. You don't really see people with black panther tattoos on their bodies. And Man, I was really for. I was mad. <laughs> that's a microaggression. I was like, mm. I felt invalidated, and I was like, that's not a thing. That's not yeah, a. That's not a thing. Know? But he he just flipped it. Like I had almost no right to be uncomfortable. And like I said, I, I wasn't complaining. I think I just I just said it. You know, just yeah. to acknowledge that it 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 was happening. Mm-hmm. I told my husband about. It. Well, he was racist. <laughs> you know, and we just laughed about it and moved on. But I was like, that's not a thing, dude. You know, and I I didn't say anything. I just was like, yeah, you know, just keep, 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 keep it moving. I've had, you know, one of my residents had a patient who had an abscess and it was right over a white power tattoo. So, you know, I was like, well, let me go look at it myself. You know, I think he was going to drain it or whatever. I was like, you could have, you could have warned me. (laughs) He's like, He's like, well, I didn't really know what to say. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's fine. Uh, I could have warned a girl yeah. here. But. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what you mentioned, like the microaggressions, even like being in a room with other people. I, I think a lot of people have heard that term, but still aren't even really aware of what yeah. microaggressions are. Can you give some examples of ones that you've experienced? Yeah. Besides so, the one you just described? Yeah. So I think, you know, feeling like you're uh, invalidated or because I guess the thing about microaggressions is that's most of the time what you're going to experience because rarely are people going to be just blatantly like racist and just say like, you know, the N word to you that that's not the reality of most people's experience. It's, you know, you do your hair and you change it, you know, black people, we can change our hair, some our texture and it goes from being, you know, braided and then now you're wearing it like in a little fro and, and white people now start shoving their hands in your hair and wanting to touch mm. it and pet it. Or, and, you know, I've experienced some of that kind of hard to come up with them just off the top of my head. But a lot of times it's just feel that feeling of being sort of invalidated or a way of sort of making you feel like you're a little bit different 
I remember once I had a med student who I, I told him one of the patients I had was a kid. He had a psychosis and he that day turned to me and said, like, you're the devil, you know, and this kid had been having a lot of issues with, with uh, psychosis um, and was an inpatient. And I just mentioned that, you know, when we were talking about what our morning was like, and he was like, do you think it's your hair? <laughs> I'm glad you can laugh at it. It's so ridiculous. It's like, or maybe the psychosis. That he has. And I was like, so then you're like, because at that time I had my hair like natural and was a little bit bigger. And I was like, what? I mean, I had no response to that. Yeah, that you're like, should I go straighten my hair? Like, is it is this not okay for me to have my hair in its natural texture like it is? So things like that, that just kind of make you feel a little bit like different, sort of invalidate you that come up. I know there's more, they just sometimes don't really come to mind quite so quickly. Yeah, well, I wonder if you've just gotten so adept at letting them just, you know, fall off your back. Right. You know, just like, you're just, it's just, it doesn't even, you don't even really allow it to take up space in your brain and allow it to really bother you, which is probably why they don't come to mind, you know, as easily. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's flip it the other way. Have you been witness to or heard about where black patients are being treated in a racist way by non-black doctors? Yeah, I think sometimes it's not quite so blatant. It's, I think a lot of black patients will feel that they've already been like pigeonholed in or feel like the other docs didn't really like listen to them, which I think is sort of like shown to be true, like in a lot of studies about outcomes, especially when you look at outcomes for black women around childbirth, where one of the reasons why they feel that mortality is higher among Black women because it's like up to three to four times higher is because Black women aren't believed when they speak up. And they've been able to show this, you know, even if you account for social economic and education and everything. And so, yeah, I've seen it where sometimes I end up being the provider for their care and they explain what happened in their other encounter where that Mm -hmm. doc just said this and they told me that, you know, I needed to leave or or I was done. Or sometimes just the way I hear people describe their patients. Sometimes I think there's some bias there, but I don't know that you're really going to see a lot of like blatant, like just racism. The thing is, if I'm in the space and in the room, I I don't know, like my assumption is people maybe censor themselves and don't always say certain things. I mean, people don't want to come across as being like jerks or certainly no one wants to come across as being racist or insensitive. But I, you know, I, the people I work with, I never really hear them come out and just say, you know, some of those racist things. It's just sometimes the descriptors they use to describe their patients sometimes make me a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm like, "Hmm." can you give an example? I think sometimes emphasizing that someone is like, you know, this really big black guy came by or, or, you know, things like that, where I feel like, I'm not sure how that's like really relevant to the true way you're trying to describe that patient, where sometimes I just feel a little bit uncomfortable by that, or just the way that they describe the patient's um, affect, you know, like, oh yeah, she's just crazy or just not really sure what she's talking about. Then I'll go into the room and it's like a very different experience that I have. I think sometimes just being a little bit dismissive early on about a patient's Mm -hmm. complaint sometimes can seem like it can provide in the end, like maybe subpar care. But like I said, I don't think you're going to often see just blatant, you know, either one way patients saying they don't want care from somebody or the other way, unless they're demented. I have had some old ladies. <laughs> I had a little old lady I took care of a couple months ago who she was transferred in and was supposed to see a surgeon. But since she came through the ER, I was supposed to also evaluate her. I walked into the room and she's, I said, hi. And she was like, no, you're not. You are not operating on me. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't plan to. Right. So good. We're in agreement then. Yeah. <laughs> profusely apologizing for her all she did but she just kept saying Mm-mm, nope not you not you and oh, interesting I yeah. don't know what that was all about you know I did what I had to do and and kind of yeah. kept it moving you know I yeah 
chose at that time to not process it too deep. And it just, I just remembered it, remembered it now. Actually, now stuff's coming up. And I had this older man who I needed to, ortho came to me and said, can you sedate this patient? We need to do a reduction. And I hadn't been his primary, but they needed sedation. So I said, let me go introduce myself and get him consented. And I was talking to him, talking to him. And he's like, I got to tell you something. So there's all of us are in the room that other attending ortho. And he's like, I once knew, what did he say? Like I've, I once had another doc, something like something about how I think he was basically talking about how he once had like another black person that he once had like care of him. And it was okay, I guess, if I did it. And I was like, what? So I just kind of chuckled. <laughs> the like, other I don't people, know what we're talking about right now. I don't know what we're talking about, but he wanted me to like really know, even though I was black, like it was okay. The other attending, you know, like we, we like, I guess I, in that moment, I was like, okay, I have a choice how to respond to this. And I just chose to laugh. And they just didn't even acknowledge he had said anything, even though we all were standing there. And then, you know, we just got him sedated and, and, and got the job done. And one of the texts was like, oh, yeah, he's from such and such. And that's how they are over there. I don't know, I don't if know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> the awkwardness of that situation. So sometimes the elderly patients, they get a pass. Mm, yeah. Which actually, let's just 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 touch on that. There's, I, I've been seeing, you know, and here's the thing, like what I think is so powerful to think about is like, there's, you know, a lot of black voices on social media right now offering their thoughts about what's okay, what's not, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. And some of them conflict. And I think some people look at that then as like, see, you can't do anything right. I get in trouble for no matter what I do. And, and then they do nothing and they just kind of avoid the whole thing. And, you know, that, but then there's plenty of people going, listen, be willing to do it wrong. Like be willing to screw it up and be checked and be corrected, you know, be willing to do all that stuff. But so some people are saying, Hey, you know, have that conversation with your elderly relatives. And other people are saying, you know, like, I get it, you know, but just like do the work on yourself first, lead by example, you know, like that kind of thing. I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. I mean, I do think it's important to do the work on yourself first and just kind of understand your own biases, if you know, like where those potentially may be. But I I do think, you know, there's spaces that I can't speak to that, you know, you as like a white person do have the ability to speak into those spaces. You know, if you look around and you have like a group of friends that you like to hang out with and one of your friends, does it mean you need to call them and say, hey, you know, I think you have some issues. Let's talk. That's not probably going to be well received, but in your future, because this, this issue isn't an issue for this week, right? So there's no, there's no urgency to like, you know, let me this week, you know, figure this out. Let me call people like, this is your life. And so, you know, in a month, people will have moved on, you know, to, to something else, just as the news cycle moves on and you have to kind of continue something that's genuine, hopefully, so when you meet up with your friends and you guys are having like, you know, dinner or um, you guys are on vacation with some family members and someone says something that you recognize to be, you know, something you don't agree with, you know, they come out and say, all lives matter. Or they say something that's clearly for you, like, no, you know, do you just like sit there and continue hanging out? Or do you say, hey, like, do you know why they were protesting or do you know why some people find that offensive? And maybe that's your opportunity to say, you know, like, I don't think what you're saying is right. So they acknowledge that when they say those things in your presence, that's not okay for you because I can't speak in those spaces. Chances are they'd never say that in my presence. Right. Right. And so you have like the ability to kind of be influential in your own sphere you know, when people are comfortable and sometimes will kind of really say what they think or really talk on an issue, doesn't mean you come out and fight them, but maybe you let them know that you think differently and the way they're thinking, you are uncomfortable by it or it offends you, you know, and that's your mission. In, in, in my opinion, if you can just be influential there, you don't have to come out here and be like, some, you know, advocate and be like, you know, take on a new position or start calling people and trying to reform them. And then of course, you know, with your immediate family, like your kids, I've had people kind of approaching me like, 
hey, you know, like as a black person, what books do you recommend I buy for my kids? And I'm like, how do you think I figured out what books to buy my kid? You know, I Googled Googled that stuff, you know, like I looked up up to see who are some good black authors. And it doesn't mean you have to read to your kids books that are just about race, you know, like you could just show them that black kids have the same experience as white kids do. So you could just read them a book about a little kid, like just playing, you know, just like Mm -hmm. a regular book, you know, it doesn't always have to have some meaning behind it or be about like slavery or something. It just be books that, you know what, like in our family, we have books that sometimes the white kid is like the, the main lead and sometimes it's a black kid. And, you know, like it, you just, it's like a mm-hmm. mix, you know, like maybe mm-hmm. sometimes my kids, like they have dolls that are black and some, some dolls are white. Like it doesn't mean yeah. like it has to have this big meaning behind it, but just you normalize other backgrounds that that's like, that's fine. And so, I mean, if you do just that, I mean, I feel like that, that alone, is a lot because like I said, I think people are feeling this in a way that I've, I've been surprised. I keep telling my husband, like, I don't know why this time is different because I feel like for me, I've felt all these things for years. Right. This is nothing new for you. Yeah. No, no. And I was surprised like, Whoa, like people are like other police chiefs are speaking out and like, there's like a real anger and like, you know, like people are not just brushing this aside. Like there's a real like awakening here um, that mm-hmm. hasn't happened before, even though I feel like this has happened before and I have felt the exact same way before. And in the end, like nothing has really changed or there's been a lot of frustration about what the justice system was able to do. And it's sort of been very just disappointing. Yeah. So this time feels different. And my husband thinks it's because maybe it was the... It was much, I guess for a lot of people, it felt much clearer what happened. Um, yeah, that's a good was, point, right? It's like, like no one's arguing like, oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. Like everyone's yeah, agreeing like, like this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Really yeah. Bothered a lot of people. But for me, I feel like other times I haven't really needed a lot more to feel that there was mm-hmm. an injustice that had occurred. But people are open right now. They're angry. They're upset. They want to learn more. They want to be active. But like I said, you know, I really feel, you know, like in a month from now when we're doing something else, you know, where are you going to be? You know, the goal isn't just to reform people and champion it, like, you know, put posts on social media for a couple of weeks. It's like, you know, after that, like, yeah, I think it's really powerful what you're saying is, you know, because it's like, yeah, definitely having the conversation, you know, calling it out when you see it, things like that are so important. But I think, you know, with so many things, right, we're so quick to be like, hey, I heard this thing and it was really great. And I'm going to, you know, all you people out there, you got to change without taking the time to actually do the work on yourself, meaning uncovering where your biases are, just understanding your involvement in it and working on that. And then I, I just think that living by example is so powerful. And when you live by example, like it's easier to live by example when you've done that work on yourself. And when you live by example, you by default, don't sit silent when somebody says something, right? Right. That's part of living it because it's who you are and you have to know who that is to be able to live as that person. It's, you know, real similar to stuff that I, that we've worked on, right? Okay, like creating okay. this future self and like, who is that person and how does she respond? How does she show up? Mm-hmm. How does she support people? Mm-hmm. And then how do we become her? And then by default, right? And I love how, what you said, like, it doesn't mean you like quit everything and you become like a full-time, you know, social justice activist. Of course you could do if you wanted to, but like most people won't. And I think some people think, well, I can't really make a difference if I don't do something as extreme as that or as like all encompassing as that. And that's not the case at all, right? You have your own little microcosm. I watched this one video. This one woman was like, listen, if you go out out to brunch with your friends, you absolutely can make a difference. Like there's four people sitting around a table, you can make a difference. And I thought that was really powerful. It's it's, um, not negating just those everyday interactions that are so important. So, so I think my final question for you pertains to being a parent, being the mother of a black son and another son on the way. Yeah. Another boy. I don't know yet. I'll find out. Oh, you don't know yet. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I I think we have heard a lot from black parents about just like the day-to-day fear that they have and things like that. Is there anything you want to speak to about that or your thoughts about raising a black child in a white environment, how you're discussing it, 
I think it's important for people to understand that like, I'm not having a discussion with my children. Like you need to be really careful about the blaze. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's white privilege. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So, so my son, um, he's only two right now. So very much so like, you know, we haven't been able to kind of get into those conversations of course yet, but yeah, I'm conscious of it. I think it, it influences when my husband and I think about schools he's going to go to. And of course, like the neighborhoods we're going to want to kind of feel comfortable with him. And I think for me, it's more a desire to protect him, even though I can't really do that a hundred percent. So what you want to do for us is make sure that he just understands certain kind of guidelines for himself. A lot of times that's more so understanding you know, his boundaries and being very clear about those, whether that's how late he can be out, whether, you know, of course, once he's much more independent and going to friends' houses, um, what type of behavior is sort of appropriate. And then if he ever were to, you know, start driving, like my younger brother, he's like six foot something and he's tall, he's dark skinned. And my parents, and he like uh, grew up like in in the U.S., my parents live in a small town. Um, And so it's very like safe and kind of insulated. And I know he was coming to visit me and passed through Chicago and he was supposed to get there like at night and then take like the train to me or something like that. And my parents were, they were like, no, like that's not happening. He is Mm. not walking around downtown Chicago as a black man at night. Mm. And so they were like, nope. And I was like, we got him a hotel, whatever. Then he stayed there for the night. So those types of things, they just felt like he might not be able to navigate that. And it wasn't that they were worried that some, like someone was going to come harm him, but more so was he going to be perceived potentially as a threat or not being in the right place. So I could picture putting some of those guardrails in place and saying, you know what, I don't want you, even now, you know, he moved out and he's in school, um, like grad school. You know, my parents are very particular with him about when he's driving uh, at night, like you go home, you go straight to library, those types of things. And I could picture doing those same types of things about you just don't want to be in certain spaces if you don't need to be there and raise any suspicion. If you get pulled over by the cops, like my husband already has those things in place, you know, where he keeps all his registration and all that stuff. So they're not like in the glove cabinet. They're like yeah. of the visor and the passenger seat. So he can just quickly reach for them and get them. But if the police are over there, you don't want to still be digging for anything. Kind of keep your hands on the steering wheel. Those types of things I think are pretty standard things. Like you're going to tell your kids just so you don't ever really appear to be a threat. I remember like a neighbor once had her package come to my house. And so we needed to take it over to her house. And so my husband was like, I'm not just going to walk over to some, you know, neighbor's mm-hmm. house and drop a package off at her. <laughs> right, like, right. doing it you know like at my house so yeah. he, you know so I took it over there like once it was bright and it was daylight mm-hmm. and you know mm-hmm. we, we texted him and told him we were coming over like that right. type of thing. you don't just walk right. over those houses to drop a package off at the door so I think yeah. all those things I would like let my son know like that's that's how you have to carry yourself I can't control everything but it's important that he doesn't per, you know think that because his parents are educated because we have money or whatever that brings from being, you know, the son of like a physician or something that's not going to protect him in any Mm -hmm. way. Right. You know, when he's out there, a lot of times he's, he's a black kid. And sometimes with that comes people sometimes wondering what you're doing in a certain place, you know? Yeah, totally. Totally. You seem to like, in terms of your thought process about it, it seems like, as you describe it, just like very factual. Mm. Right. Like I don't sense a lot of resistance, like, and that's wrong and it shouldn't be that way. And I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. It's just an observation that, uh, that I have. It's in, it, it, I, I think that serves you probably to just like, these are the roles of the world, that. you know? I think you've helped me with that. I posted about that. Like when I was still in Waldo, I remember posting about my frustration with navigating things and feeling like as a black person, things just weren't fair and weren't right. I remember you post, you kind of helped me kind of work through that. And even with this, you know, I've posted on Ask Katrina about it. And I feel like I've kind of gotten to sort of a little more of an acceptance of things. Like you said, there's less resistance and just realizing I have some control and then some, some things I don't, um, I can, you know, I can do my best, but the like living in a lot of fear, wishing it wasn't what it was. I don't know that that serves me. Yeah. It doesn't really have an upside for you. Yeah. yeah, it just creates more concern, more fear, more right. a sense that the world that is unfair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really powerful, right? Like, 
and and doesn't negate what's happening. It doesn't make it so that you're, you know, you're still doing the same things, but just coming from a different place. Yeah. So your experience of this different. Good. Okay. Okay. Well, as we finish this up, are there any other personal stories or other experiences that you've had that you think would be relevant or useful or something? It's like, you know, if you could just get white people's ear for a second, I just wish they knew, (laughs) you know, I don't think so. I think I got, I think I got across what I wanted to, to get across. Okay. Um, awesome. You know, of course you can only speak to my experience, but yeah, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm but that's what I think is so powerful, right? When you hear someone's specific experience, it's like, I can really, really understand you as a person. Yeah. And then when you understand that enough, right, then you can start extrapolating to, okay, well, how do um, I want to approach things, you know, well, approach this on a, on a more macro level. So Hey, Tendi, thank you so much. Seriously, super duper appreciate you and appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you for giving me the forum to talk about these things. Never done this. (laughs) Awesome, awesome. Well, you did awesome. And I I really enjoyed it and learned a lot. So thank you so much. Thank you. You take care. You too. Did you know that you can find a lot more help from me on my website? Go to katrinaubelmd.com and click on free resources.